This is an AMI podcast. I've just been discriminated in a human rights (laughs) tribunal hearing, but this happens all the time across all disabilities. Those those head-shaking moments, like, what? But here we are. I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Like other marginalized communities, the disability community has often turned to the courts to address discrimination, ensure equal rights, and force institutions to change their behavior. There is a sense that changing the law is at least a first step in changing attitudes and ideas. With that said, people who turn to the law also often understand its limitations. After all, there can be a judgment on paper that never gets enforced. But the law does give people hope. It allows people from marginalized communities, be they BIPOC or disabled, to assert their universal human rights. At the forefront of legal struggles involving the disability community are lawyers with disabilities themselves who are challenging the content of the law, fighting for disability inclusive decisions, but fundamentally also challenging who even gets to be a lawyer. Today, we discuss disability justice and the law. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Juwita Gupta. Today is the second week of a three-part series where we speak to and get to know the three amazing inductees, the Canada Disability Hall of Fame. Last week, we heard from Josh Duack, and if you missed that conversation, you can find it on your favorite podcast platform. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome to the program Lauren MacDonald. Lauren MacDonald is a passionate human rights lawyer and disability advocate, widely respected for her unwavering commitment to public awareness and positive change. MacDonald was lead organizer of a forum that encouraged Ontario's government to enact stronger disability legislation. The Accessibility for Ontarians with a Disabilities Act or AODA was introduced six weeks later and became law in June 2005. Also passionate about communications inclusion, she created Hearview, a social enterprise educating about the benefits of captioning at live and virtual events. Since that time, MacDonald has shown that captioning helps diverse audiences while introducing it at universities, superior courts and social justice tribunals. And thanks to her efforts, live captioning is now standard at several Ontario theater venues. Lauren has such an impressive resume. I am pleased to welcome her to the program. Lauren, welcome and thank you so much for speaking to us today. Thank you and I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, I'm overwhelmed by your very kind introduction. And I do hope I I can live up to it. 
Lauren, congratulations on your induction to the Canada Disability Hall of Fame. With all the accolades you've received, what does this mean to you? Well, I think the most important thing is that it's always gratifying when people with disabilities are recognized for their sustained efforts to make uh, society more inclusive to people with disabilities, because not only are we dealing with our own personal discrimination that we face, but many of the advocates, certainly the ones that I know, try and pave the road for those to follow, to have an easier time than what we've uh, experienced. And also it's very important to me, uh, this honor, because representation matters. And I'm one of the few uh, people with profound hearing loss to be inducted into the Canadian Disability Hall of Fame. And one of the few lawyers uh, human rights lawyers who are uh, inducted. And so that matters because then it demonstrates to uh, other people with disabilities that, oh, this, here's a lawyer, somebody with profound hearing loss, she's doing human rights work, advocating for accessibility, and there's room for others to do that as well. And so that's why the, the Hall of Fame is important and as well because the the plaques of all of the Hall of Famers are in Metro Hall in downtown Toronto. You, the public, has an opportunity to walk through the exhibit and read about all of the outstanding um, recipients, uh, past and present, and the work that they're doing. And that's powerful. When you think about your advocacy work, what would you say is a highlight for you? Well, I'm fortunate to have many um, in my career. And it's just, uh, it's interesting because most times the work is difficult, it's challenging, it's hard to be a pioneer when you are, are pushing the status quo to create something better. So for me, I, I would have to say that live theater captioning, whereby anyone attending uh, a Mervish production, which is in Toronto, is able to see on the stage, there's a large LED screen that has the captioning uh, present, which supports it. Anything that is spoken on the stage or sung on the stage is able to read it on the LED um, screen. And that was very powerful, moving to me, when I went to see a play called Come From Away, which is an extremely popular um, play. And because the it is set in Newfoundland with a lot of Newfoundlanders uh, speaking in their dialect, which can be challenging for some to understand. And so I found it very beneficial to be able to read, but also knowing that anyone in that theater who may not have picked up something, it would benefit them as well, was very gratifying. And then Hearview's birth event in October of 2019 was before Michelle Obama in Hamilton. 
It was a, it was the first event. It was a limited audience, so only about a hundred people were able to see the captioning because PRView was brought in within ten days of the event. So it was challenging to try and make it available for the entire um, forum, which would be, I think there was in nearly 15,000 people. And then another event right um, immediately before that was with uh, a young woman named Haba Gurma, who is deafblind. She is the first deafblind um, law student at Harvard University to be granted a law degree. And as she was talking about the importance of accessibility on the stage, she referenced how important captioning was at live events. And I admit to tearing up when I heard her say those words by reading what was said. And that was a powerful, I would hope for everybody at the event to see this is why it's important. You mentioned HearView, which is your social enterprise. What more can you tell us about it? Well, I've created HearView. I've, I've been involved with captioning for decades, often being the first one to introduce captioning in post-secondary and the arts and in the courts and, and um, other areas. But I was still frustrated because I would want to go to events, uh, live events and would request captioning and would be told, no, it can't be done. We don't know how it works. We don't have the money. Nobody's asked for it. It's too complicated. And then told, just buy a ticket to sit near the front and you'll be fine. But people don't understand that hearing and understanding are two different things. And that even if the volume is loud, doesn't mean I will be able to understand what's being said. And lip reading is not perfect. And that you don't get everything that is said on the lips. Even expert lip readers, you may only get about 80%. But that other 20% could have important information. So in 2017, there was an event in Toronto called Luminato. And there was an international, uh, internationally renowned human rights lawyer that was going to be speaking by the name of Amal Clooney. I very much wanted to go. Captioning would not be made available. Tickets were several hundred dollars to be able to sit at the front. And I was so angry at the exclusion, the ongoing exclusion. And I thought, this has to change. And then who better than I to uh, attempt to do this? So as I mentioned, 2019 was HearView's first event and uh, everything was going along very well, but I didn't factor a global pandemic <laughs> that was going to happen five months later that was shut down live events. So I shifted to um, advocating for captioning for virtual events. When you talk about the lack of captioning being an ongoing problem, are you ever frustrated with having to listen to the same excuses and having to have the same conversations over and over again? Every single day. 
and people find it hard to believe those who do not live with disabilities are quite surprised to hear that I face discrimination in one way or another every single day. If it's not attitudinal barriers, it's systemic barriers, it's any number of reasons. And it's so frustrating because another predominant argument for not having captioning is the lack of understanding about who benefits. Oh, it's only for those people, meaning people with hearing loss, there's not many of them. Why would we go out of our way? So I was very, it was very important to me with Hearview to explain it's not just those people who benefit. It supports people with, with hearing loss, of course, those with learning disabilities, people who have English as a second language. What are one of the most common ways for people to learn English? They put on the captions and the subtitles on TV so that they can pick up the language in that way. And it also supports understanding someone who is speaking who may have an unfamiliar speech pattern for, uh, from yourself. And sometimes the venues, the acoustics are not good. There are distractions. There's any number of reasons why you may miss something. It's about inclusion and community. Uh, communication inclusion so that no one feels they have to request it because there is a lot of stigma around requesting accommodation and uh, it respects the dignity of the people attending your event because you want I would think to have the most inclusive beneficial value-added experience. I mentioned earlier that you had been involved with a forum that contributed to the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act becoming the law in Ontario. What involvement have you had with the AODA since then? Yeah, it was, a, it was an incredible event. I handled the logistics of the one day cross disability forum. I give full credit to David Lepofsky, who was uh, the one that really had the, forgive the pun, vision of what this day was going to look like. And it was very um, rewarding. This I organized this event the summer before I started law school. And the event was held at the end of my first week of law school. And so uh, it was really about demonstrating to the government how standards work in other uh, sectors and how the government could possibly borrow from those examples to create standards to advance accessibility. So once the law was passed in 2005, which is at, was at the end of my first year of law school, it was so powerful to watch legislation being created during my first year of law school. And so after that, I was very privileged to receive three public appointments to develop the AODA. So the first public appointment was developing the customer service standards. And again, as I've learned throughout, 
my advocacy career is being the first does not mean easy. <laughs> and it can be very challenging to set up the process. And initially, um, the government employee had a vote on the committee. And there were more people without disabilities than there were people with disabilities. So we had to go through that whole process. None of that would be surprising to you. And so we had to go through the process of A, government was allowed to attend, but have no vote. And B, we needed to bump up the number of people with disabilities. So it, uh, that was agreed upon and there was more than half on the committee because again, nothing about us without us. And we don't need those without disability co-opting their view of, of, of what needs to be done. And so that was the first. And then the second appointment was very briefly on the Accessibility Standards Advisory Council. Um, and then I worked on the first standard and I've just finished work on the last standard, which was for healthcare. And that one took five years because there were delays because of change in government. And then there were further delays because of COVID. And we had to complete the, the majority of our work all online. We could not meet in person. And that was very challenging to meet the accommodation needs of people with different disabilities to make sure those who have vision were accommodated properly, those with hearing were accommodated, those with learning disabilities and what have you. But we got the work done. I'm very proud of the healthcare standard, which has been accepted, I believe, by the minister and is now on its way to becoming regulation. I don't want to take away from how important your work on the legislation is, but many disability advocates have said that the government could have done more and that Ontario will not be fully accessible by 2025. What's your reaction? Well, consider that 2025 is not that far away. And of course, back in 2005, 2025 seems so far away. And of course, uh, many thought, why isn't the timeline shorter? But it was in the recognition that there was a lot of work to be done in the province to make this happen. And But are we going to be a barrier-free province in, uh, gosh, two and a half years, less than? Of course not. I think we could all see that, but we all need to recognize that COVID uh, certainly uh, complicated matters uh, because the, the priorities had to shift. And um, it, it, I think we have made significant gains, but we still have a ways to go. You mentioned the pandemic, but you are also a lawyer. I want to ask you about the decision that many courts, including social justice tribunals, made to go online. Is that a good thing? 
or has it created barriers to access to justice? Well, COVID has certainly shown us how marginalized groups have been uh, severely impacted. And um, it was also, I think in some respects, this is a demonstration of ableism. And um, you'll recall that, uh, or would certainly be aware that for years, people with disabilities, employees who rely on accessible transit or other um, accommodation would request flexible time the ability to work from home, all of those things. And we're told, no, it can't happen. The minute that COVID hit and the broader employee population was impacted, how quickly did we shift to remote work? So this is another example of proceedings being offered remotely, assuming that that's going to work for everyone but it also highlights the privilege that is inherent in a decision like that, because not everyone, you think of Ontario, we have remote areas, we have rural areas, and we're well aware that many people with disabilities are not even impoverished, they're way below that. And they may not have stable internet, Wi-Fi, if they can even afford internet, do they have the computer? Do they have webcam? Do they have microphone? All of those things are problematic. Um, unless you are prepared to have centers, for example, in remote areas that do have all of that technology available. So someone could, if they're able to travel to a center, to avail themselves. So I understand, but again, this is a privileged decision that recognizes the majority's needs and doesn't take into consideration the challenges. And also not everyone may be comfortable admitting that I, I can't afford a computer, a laptop, a, a tablet, a you know, webcam, internet. And, and that's demoralizing and it's not respecting the dignity of many people with disabilities who find themselves in that situation. You are a lawyer with profound hearing loss. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the accommodations put in place to help you advocate for your clients? Yeah, what I use is of course captioning is very important. Uh, it, when I appeared before the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario for a hearing for my client, I had the use of a captioner in the room and the adjudicator would explain before the proceedings got underway that the applicant counsel, meaning I would counsel for the person with a disability who filed the application, um, alleging that discrimination had happened. And so the adjudicator would explain that I, as the counsel, um, was as an accommodation using a captioner who is, is a, a steno reporter, who is a trained court reporter, but they have extra training so that what they type on a steno machine goes through a software interface and appears on a laptop computer 
for me to read verbatim what's going on. And I was quite shocked when opposing counsel, meaning the counsel for the respondent, um, the, the respondent is the person that was alleged to have infringed on a person with disabilities rights. Opposing counsel said, you know, I object to the use of a captioner. And I was like, what? And of course, my clients who were the parents of a um, little boy who was discriminated against. And I couldn't understand why. And so the adjudicator said, well, what is your objection? Opposing counsel said, my friend, which is kind of a sorry, not sorry way of referring <laughs> to opposing counsel. Uh, my friend here, by having a captioner who is captioning every word that is being said, and will have access to a transcript afterwards, a verbatim transcript, she will be receiving unfair litigation advantage. And my view, though I use my inside voice <laughs> as much as I wanted to respond, was how dare you, you know, opposing counsel who has articling students taking down notes can request an audio um, CD of the proceedings after, who can hear himself, who works at a Bay Street law firm with tremendous resources versus myself, who is uh, just on my own. How dare you? How dare you make such an accusation that was coming from your own privilege as a strategy to you know, throw things off. So the adjudicator said, you know, I can see why you might think that. Why don't we try and resolve this one more time informally and, and hopefully we can resolve it so we don't need to move forward with the hearing. It was resolved, but it left a very bad taste in my mouth and certainly in my client's mouth to see the irony of I've just been discriminated in a human rights <laughs> tribunal hearing, but this happens all the time across all disabilities. Those, those, those head-shaking moments, like what? But here we are. You can't make the stuff up, Lauren. Given your experience, what kinds of conversations do you have with clients who might be intimidated by an unfamiliar legal process, who think it's complicated, who don't really feel like it'll accomplish anything? What do you say to them? Well, for, for one thing is I don't recommend uh, application to the Human Rights Tribunal at present because the system is tremendously backlogged. You know, last I heard, there were several thousand applications waiting to be processed. Uh, at one point, the Human Rights Tribunal was committed to start to finish one year. But in one of my cases, the incident happened in 2016. The application was filed in 2017, and a decision was not rendered until 2020 almost four years from the date of 
the incident. And that is very difficult for people with disabilities, the only clients I serve, to go through that process because for some, your life is, is on hold. And you may not be uh, working. You may have uh, challenges with your housing situation. You may not be able to go to a, a certain uh, store or whatever until this gets resolved. And so I really don't recommend it and try and see if there are other ways to encourage those who are alleged to have discriminated to really do the right thing. But as, having gone through this, as the person living with the disability, I know the person personal toll it can take on you. And uh, it's a very sad state of affairs right now. How then does the human rights process or a legal victory filing a case, how do those things tie in with a broader strategy for social change? You know, there are other tactics, working with the media, maybe holding a protest. How does it tie into a bigger picture strategy? Well, thank you for that question. Uh, I just mentioned uh, the case about uh, that took four years from start to finish. And so what that case was informally, it was called the washroom access case. And this was a young woman who uses forearm crutches because she has spina bifida and was in a downtown Toronto restaurant, needed to use the washroom. Where are most washrooms in, uh, in Toronto restaurant? Downstairs and was denied by the staff for proceeding to the washroom under the presumption that because of her forearm crutches, she would fall down the stairs, injure herself, and sue the restaurant. And so this is why it was a very important case because for the first thing, and using media to promote um, allegations of discrimination, for example, on the Toronto, in the Toronto Star uh, on this day, which is uh, August the 12th, um, there is a full page story in the Toronto Star about a young woman who is being forced to give up her rights in order to have access to support. And so it was very important for me to, and with the client's permission, of course, to look at how we can present this case to the media. And what I really wanted to do was demonstrate that this was not one woman in one restaurant in one city with one particular disability who have been discriminated against. And very happy to see that in March of 2017, the Toronto Star again did a front page story on the allegations involved. And it, it created an opportunity to educate people on why this matters. Because unless you can see yourself experiencing a discrimination, it, it, they're like, okay, well, I'm not blind. I'm not deaf. I don't use a wheelchair. I don't use crutches. That doesn't matter. It doesn't impact me. 
But the thing is, washroom access go to the root of human dignity. Because if you are denied in a public place to use a washroom, what are your alternatives? They're not dignified at all. And so I was very happy with that. I persisted because even though the restaurant owner didn't even acknowledge the application, didn't respond to it, and within a year had closed down the restaurant, I still persisted representing my client. We persisted to hold the feet to the fire of the Human Rights Tribunal to render a decision. Because I knew even though there was no opportunity to collect on any kind of damages award, just getting a statement on the books, on the record, that restaurant cannot do this would be very powerful. And as I said, four years to the day, August uh, of 2020, the date is coming up very soon, actually. I, I'll have to check the calendar to see when it was uh, released. But that the tribunal agreed that my client had experienced the discrimination that impacted her dignity and restaurant cannot do this. And that, uh, that decision went uh, across Canada, being hailed as very important for advancing human rights. And also I should mention that when the story came out in, in the Toronto Star in 2017, that went viral around the world. And it was the topic of discussion in law schools, in many areas, the disability groups, human rights groups, and talking about the taboo topic of having to use a washroom that was impacting those who were transgender, you know, um, those who are pregnant who needed to um, have access, um, you know, caregivers who were changing a, a baby diaper or what have you. And we need to have those candid conversations because they're it's part of life and we need to recognize it. What advice would you give other lawyers with disabilities who are starting out in their careers? Well, I, I mentor a lot of um, law students with disabilities and lawyers new to the profession. And I don't sugarcoat anything because I don't think that's serving anyone well. And I'm very candid to say, do you have connections within the legal profession, someone who is ready to provide you with an articling position, an internship, someone who is ready to provide you with work at their law firm, someone who can mentor you, champion you, sponsor you, or do you have the resources to set up your own law practice? financial resources as well as the uh, support to do that because if you don't have either of those opportunities available to you it's going to be very challenging for you and depending on the disability and also what experience you brought coming into law school how your grades were in law school um, just be very uh, thoughtful about what area of law you want to practice because invariably I get a lot of uh, law students and new lawyers saying oh I'm really interested in human rights law 
But the thing is, you don't get paid well doing human rights law because it is predominantly on contingency, meaning that we get paid when the matter has settled and damages are awarded. But like I said, that can take years to happen. So it's fine to be interested in human rights law, but also make sure that you're supporting yourself in other areas of law, such as labor and employment or criminal or family or what have you. And then the human rights law is supplemented by the other areas of law that pay. Mm -hmm. Just in the minute or two that we have left, what are some of the things you plan on working on in the future? Oh, I'm always busy working on something. And uh, at present, I'm working on a book. And uh, because I think it's very important, one of my favorite topics is about representation and how it matters. Representation in the media, in the profession, in all areas of life. And also recognizing that the movement, excuse me, for the BIPOC, which I don't like that phrase because it lumps everybody into one group. And because uh, BIPOC conversations often don't include disability and don't recognize intersectionality that disability covers all of, uh, all of those areas. And a lot of equity, diversity and inclusion conversations also don't talk about uh, disability accessibility. And I'm even seeing how the concept in the US, which is idea, for inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility has even been co-opted. So the A doesn't stand for accessibility, it stands for allyship. So here we are again, being ignored. So that's one thing I'm working on. It's also very important that there is an informal group whereby law students, lawyers, paralegals who live with disabilities have an opportunity to network engage, uh, advocate. And so there's a number of things. I also still do a lot of um, social media on LinkedIn predominantly, media commentary, um, writing for a magazine. So I try and at, in any way possible is to provide that education to let people know because ableism still isn't a term that is familiar to a lot of people. Lauren, I'm a big fan of your work, and I look forward to your book. We'll have to bring you back on the program to talk about your book, so I hope you'll be willing to come back and chat with us again. Absolutely. Look forward to it. Thank you so much for a delightful interview. Thank you so much for being here. Lauren MacDonald is one of three inductees to the Canada Disability Hall of Fame. That was Lauren McDonald, one of three inductees to the Canada Disability Hall of Fame. There was so much interesting content to go over and unpack in that conversation. I don't know where to start, but I think when I reflect on Lauren's experiences, especially at the Human Rights Tribunal, I was just left shaking my head because it's not very often that you hear about a human rights lawyer facing discrimination at the Human Rights Tribunal. It's a comedy of errors. Here is someone who was and is a major advocate for people with disabilities, was instrumental in getting the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act off the ground, and she's facing discrimination at the Human Rights Tribunal 
it just goes to show you for as far as we've come as people with disabilities we've still got quite a ways to go okay speaking of going it's time for me to head out so I'm going to say goodbye to all of you. I'd like to thank Lauren McDonald for being my guest on the program. Nisreen Abdul-Majid is our technical producer. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI Audio. On behalf of the team, I've been your host, Juhita Gupta. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.